Today, Dr. Kyle Hill talks about CBD oil. She answers the question, is the issue the American diet? Are the Food and Drug Administration working together? Keep listening to join this discussion. And now, part two of, it's the whole plant for me. What is it like as a doctor um, when you are treating a patient and you see that frustration, you see that fear, uh, you see that concern in their eye, like this is this is it. Uh, I always be in this pain. I always have this tremor. Uh, you know, I always have these headaches. Uh, and for you to be able to work with them to find. Uh, something that is able to help or offer them a treatment that is able to help and then you see that first glimmer of hope like what is that like and take us from the start when you first see that patient and then when you see that first breakthrough what is what is that like for you well I'll tell you Pastor Johnny just even giving them options and letting them know that there's hope I mean, and this is before, you know, even we tried anything or know that it works. I think patients just want to be heard. They want to be provided options and they want to know that they have somebody that they can rely on to kind of help them go through this process. Um, and, and just with like simple recommendations, you know, you tell people, you know, that have chronic headaches, you kind of just start, well, what is your, your, your water status look like? How much water are you drinking? And, and sometimes patients don't even consider that to be um, a reason for their headaches. And then when they start increasing their hydration and they notice, you know, they come up, well, okay, well, how much water did you drink this week? You know, how much water did you drink last week? Are you seeing any improvements in your headaches, you know? And when they, you know, say, you know what? I never thought about it, but now that I've been drinking more water and it could be something so simple, you know? Um, and, and that feels amazing just to know that you can help and provide options and hope and, and provide patients with, you know, the listening ear to kind of get them through what they're going through. Does that add to uh, your, uh, I want to say, put words in your mouth, uh, but when you see the American diet uh, and the industry that has been put together, the food and drug industry, that uh, almost seem like they're in cahoots. <laughs> Somehow it's like, hey, we'll throw you a bone, you throw us a bone, wham, and we meet in the middle, right? Uh, and does it seem like that just from us as consumers, or is there a hint of maybe there is something that needs to be looked at that's changed in both of these industries to keep them both from being so profitable? <laughs> yeah, I, I agree, Pastor Johnny. Um, and the American, and it's funny because, you know, I wanted, my passion for going back to medical school came while I was in Korea. And so things are done very different in Korea. Um, diet, healthcare, all those things. Um, and and they, they've got like McDonald's and things there too, but it's just like, people just don't run to those as, as often um, because the health is stressed from like early, early on. I, I taught, um, 
I taught kindergarten, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, and sixth grade. And that's at a public school. So I did, you know, see like the lunches. I actually had lunch with my kids. It was a free lunch provided. And they're super healthy lunches. And, you know, they do kimchi with every meal, which is really great for probiotic. Um, so I, when you touched on the American diet, there is a huge correlation with a lot of um, the, you know, the disease process that we're seeing, the high cholesterol, the diabetes, I mean, just astronomical levels of diabetes and, and obesity. And those things are directly related to the American lifestyle or what's been glorified as the American lifestyle. Um, so I think, you know, education on basic things like nutrition and health and fitness are imperative, you know, especially for patients dealing with chronic pain. Because there are certain lifestyle habits, we, you know, we can talk about alcohol, um, different fatty foods, lots of red meats that cause inflammation in the body. And that inflammation is directly related to a lot of these disease processes and flare-ups and pain. Um, I myself have, have even had to kind of really, you know, throw out a lot of things in my diet and be really conscientious of the things that I consume um, because I know I've been able to kind of watch when I eat certain sugary foods or fatty foods, I'm in much more pain. I have more pain flare-ups. I have more migraines and things like that. Um, and those things, you know, aren't readily taught. And I, I think that, you know, it's imperative, especially as physicians, that we're educating our patient and, and easy, simple things that, you know, patients can do to kind of enhance their quality of life. Yeah, I think is there's such a, a, a balance that has to be there because it's, it's not that other countries, like you said, don't have some of the same food options. It's really the overall lifestyle of the way we live. And I did a podcast with a young lady who was in Europe and uh, she went there for the summer uh, to, to do an internship. Uh, and she said in the middle of the day, everybody went home for like an hour and a half, ate lunch, took a nap, and then went back to work in school. And I was like, what? And she was like, hey, that's what they do. Uh, because that is what's best for them. And then they gather tonight at nighttime and don't eat past a certain time. And they always eat together as a family. And so she was like, I know that it's possible, but when I moved back to the States, it seemed impossible because of the lifestyle and the jobs that we have. So it seems like one feeds the other. Uh, and if we can't fix certain pieces of it, then these industries are going to keep you know, making that money and then we will suffer the long-term costs. And the idea is not to find uh, healing, but just to find solutions to deal with uh, the symptoms, you know, so we don't, we can work through the symptoms, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so it's just like, as you're working through the symptoms, your body doesn't get to heal and it actually finds itself needing more medication to deal with further symptoms of the cause. And so it just seems like this ongoing thing so is what you are studying something that could potentially help us cut it off in the path and maybe not uh because right now we know this opioid epidemic is not playing uh and it's being prescribed left and right legally uh and then some illegally uh, so is what you are studying right now something that can help us kind of reverse the curse Yes, Pastor John. And and for more than one ways than others, you know, opioids, you know, they do have a place yes. for, you know, short-term pain, um, of what we call acute pain. 
but all the studies have showed that they don't work for chronic pain. You know, if pain for three months or more, we should be looking at other options. You know, um, we should be looking at other reasons why, you know, the pain is there and also um, lifestyle changes and things that can be done. Um, so the things that I study with the endocannabinoids and the phytocannabinoids equivalents um, and how to kind of supplement our endocannabinoid systems, um, I do believe that there is merit. You know, there's been studies that shown that in conjunction with opioids, patients take less opioids to achieve the same type of pain relief. Um, we're looking at CBD to help reduce cortisol levels, to help with sleep. Um, to help with any kind of like digestional issues and inflammation. So I really think that the potential out there is, you know, um, is definitely is definitely there. We just, you know, we, they, they keep saying we need more research. The thing is, we have a lot of research. We need more like clinical protocol research specifically, which, you know, it's really hard because it's still federally illegal to schedule one subject on substance. So um, our hands are kind of tied on the type and amount of research we can do, but there's been a plethora of research in other countries um, who, and, and we know for sure that this plant, the compounds are, are safe. We know that there's no overdose potential um, and not even really any kind of addiction potential. So in, in my lens, when I look at it, you know, here is a plant with several compounds that have been shown efficacious with different ailments um you know and and also we know that it, there does, there's not really a toxic dosage so i feel like it should be something we would should be allowed to play with and research more um because i also believe it wait a it, minute doc i'm gonna stop you now you know for the longest we have been told that this is one of the most addictive substances ever created uh and so are you skirting around this or is it is this misinformation? Um, it's a little bit of both. Let's, you know, to kind of give you what I've learned and what I've researched. When you look at something being addictive, you know, there's different ways to determine the addiction potential. Cannabis has been shown not to be physiologically addictive. Now, if you're taking it in such a high concentration for so long, you will have some type of symptoms of withdrawal. None that are um, to the point of like respiratory depression or tremors or anything serious like a lot of the pharmaceuticals that we have that are FDA approved. That standing, I personally feel like if we can approve certain drugs that we know are toxic, addicted and have withdrawal potentials, we should be able to look at this plant that we know do not have those things, but also has the potential um, to, you know, solve a lot of elements or either be a, you know, a therapy or even, you know, adjunct therapy, an add on. Um, so I personally believe it needs to be looked at further. It's not, you know, when you look at, I wish I had the chart that showed you the addiction potential of some of the other drugs like alcohol, like cigarettes. Um, and it's just, it's not even on, on par with that at all. So, um, Personally, the things that are legal with severe addiction potential, they don't, it does, cannabis doesn't come close to that. Now, let me ask you this, because I think one of the things that you, this industry is getting a bad rap on is there's a difference between what is grown medically and what is projected to be introduced medically and through some of these, uh, these uh, uh, offices. 
than what is sold, uh, sold on the street. Uh, so can you talk to us about the difference between those two products? Uh, and then also, uh, all the products that are gonna be uh, distributed in these different uh, um, shops and outlets, are they gonna be governed to the, uh, to the extent where new users can trust these products without you know, having some kind of shaking addiction? Yeah, I think that's a very good point, um, Pastor Johnny. And to make a distinction between, you know, medical and recreation. Okay, so depending on what state you are, you know, yeah, you can get a medical card, you can grow your own, and you are also privy to like certain products and dispensaries that have a higher level of THC and things like that. But truthfully, it's the same plant. So whether you're using it, you know, medically as a patient or you're using it recreational, the, the plan is still the same. Now, the thing that I like to stress is if this were a federally legal and regulated substance, we would have more standardized on our products. You know, we would know more exactly what's in it and make sure it's tested for pesticides, make sure it's tested for heavy metal, make sure we know um, the concentrations of the specific cannabinoids. And that's the problem when you buy things off the street. You have no idea. You know, you get something in a baggie and, and you hope somebody did what they were supposed to when they grew it, but you don't know. You know, a lot of times they use pesticides to make sure, you know, um, the plant isn't eaten away by pests. And then those pesticides have chemicals that can be harmful, especially if you're immunocompromised and you're using cannabis as medicine. So uh, one of my other push for federal legalization as well as regulation is that we get a more product and then like as a health provider you feel more confident recommending something to a patient um as far as you know the idea of medical versus recreational my thing is everybody has an endocannabinoid system and everybody has a different endocannabinoid tone of that system and so i personally believe um that every use is really medical you know i mean if you're using it all day long every I can't that's that's not really medical I mean maybe you're you're trying to help an anxiety issue that you have or depression but I still think it's important to uh, be in connection with a healthcare provider that can walk you through it um, to make sure you don't have any adverse reactions um, and make sure that you're starting at a dose that's low enough and you get to a therapeutic level um, where you don't have a lot of bad side effects so it's important that these compounds are regulated Thank you for joining us for part two of It's the Whole Plant for Me with Dr. Kyle Hill. If you have questions about the cannabis plant or about the CBD product, use the hashtag JDO, the number three podcast, and hashtag Dr. Kyle Hill, that's K-Y-L-E, to join the discussion. I want to hear from you, and I want you to participate in future podcasts. Email me at pastorjohnny at firstmet.org.